Hi, I'm Peggy. And I'm Dave. And this is Amped, the podcast for people with limb loss. Hey, Dave, how are you today? I'm great, Peggy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I'm excited because actually we have a third person on the podcast today. And we are kicking off spring break week in this family by doing a an interview with Peter Thomas. Yes, and we've mentioned Peter Thomas many times in the past, particularly over the last few weeks um, as we were talking through the NAAOP fellowship uh, opportunity that's available for people in the community. Uh, let me give Peter a quick intro and then we'll start talking to him. So Peter is a lawyer. Um, he works at a firm called Powers Pile Sutter and Verville in Washington, D.C. He's been there since 1991. He has a federal law and legislative practice there, and he focuses on the areas of healthcare disability policy, uh, Medicare coverage and reimbursement policy, medical rehab services, devices and research, appropriations, vocational and community services and supports. Um, he served on multiple agencies and councils, including the National Advisory Council of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, uh, the President's Advisory Commission on Consumer Protection and Quality in the Healthcare Industry. He was a chair of a subcommittee on consumer rights protections and responsibilities there, a National Advisory Board for the Center on Medical Rehabilitation Research at NIH, Institute of Medicine Committee on Improving the Disability Decision Process. Um, he served on a number of nonprofit boards as well, including the Center for International Rehabilitation uh, and Physicians Against Landmines, the Foundation for Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, and the American Trauma Society. He served as a trustee. He served of different commissions. Uh, he served as a co-chair of the Healthcare Task Force of the Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities for more than 15 years. Um, and he is general counsel to the National Association for the Advancement of Orthotics and Prosthetics, which everyone listening to this should know because we talked about NAAOP in our Alphabet Soup podcast last year. Um, Peter is also the chair of the ONP Alliance, so he is the public voice of the aggregate organization that speaks on behalf of all five major O&P organizations. And Peter also has personal experience with disability. He uses two prostheses himself. And lastly, he is the co-author of the Americans with Disabilities Act, a guidebook for management and people with disabilities. <sighs> Peter. I was going to say, you've got to be exhausted after that. And now he can add amped... Amped, uh, interviewee. 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 Welcome, there you Peter. go. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Dave and, and Peggy. It's a real pleasure. I'm uh, very pleased to be doing this with you and uh, looking forward yes, to the next Yes, um, I'm exhausted. So, um, Peggy. <laughs> I'm going to have to trim down. I'm going to have to trim down my. Uh, no, it's my all bio. it's all relevant to the to our listeners. So, with all of that being said, um, I think Peggy, a good place for us to start would be the fellowship, right? Absolutely. Um, it, part of the fellowship, well, actually the main part of the fellowship and what really has people in the community excited and chattering about is the fact that they're going to be able to work right next to Peter Thomas on advocacy issues. Uh, so can you tell us about the fellowship and your role in it and why you think it's important for the community? I'd love to. Uh, this is a real exciting time um, for this particular uh, endeavor, and that endeavor is trying to bring new advocates, um, trying to bring people into Washington to get them to understand the uh, orthotic and prosthetic policy and advocacy process, and to really get to understand the issues involved. Uh, 
not just for orthotics and prosthetics, but for the overall healthcare and rehabilitation and disability agenda. So it's a great opportunity. This is a pilot program that we're going to be doing this summer. And uh, of course, applications are due just at the end of this month, uh, March uh, 31st. So uh, deadline is right around the corner. You submit the applications online, uh, go to www.naaop.org for more information. Uh, but we're really looking for some top candidates from around the country uh, who really want to come to Washington, experience uh, the policymaking process, the advocacy process, and really get to understand um, how, how this is done. Um, we're particularly focused on uh, either people with limb loss or limb difference. And that's really what this fellowship is focused on. It's bringing... Uh, you know, there's a saying in the broader disability community, nothing about us without us. And this is really a, an attempt to to really bring some people into Washington and have our best advocates be ourselves. I like that. Nothing about us without us. I haven't heard that before, but that's that's really profound. It's a kind of a, a key element of uh, disability policy that has arisen, arisen over the decades. You know, with the, um, if you don't mind, I'll go back very briefly. Uh, you've got the, the movements of the 60s and the 70s, and what came out of that, one of those movements was the disability movement. It came out of California and uh, Berkeley, and um, it's, there's a rich history there, and something that, that really will be part of this fellowship is educating, uh, you know, people who, who, you know, the fellow, um, all about that, uh, that transition and how disability policy has matured over the, over the past decades. But what that really, what that saying really encapsulates is the fact that, um, no more you know, kind of paternalism, no more, uh, having people doing things for us, creating programs to help people with disabilities, let people do with disabilities help themselves. And that's what the, that moniker is all about. And it's a pretty powerful message, as you said. It absolutely is. Um, now, the one thing that, that I've been hearing online a little bit and that there's a concern about, and I want to give you an opportunity to address it um, and kind of put those fears to rest, is people are concerned that it's kind of a wasted opportunity due to the timing, that, that nothing really happens in D.C. during the summer. Oh, well, I, I can assure you it's not going to be a wasted opportunity. Uh, first off, the uh, Congress uh, will be in session, uh, the, you know, late May, all of June and all of July, except for the week of the July 4th recess. So it's it's actually a very productive time in, in Congress traditionally. Uh, now, this year, there's a, a midterm election coming up. And my guess is that uh, if there's going to be legislation that's passed, it's going to be between now and the end of uh, July before they go on the what typically winds up being a four or five week congressional recess. Um, they call it a district work period, but we all know that they're taking off. They take, <laughs> they're taking off for August. Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, uh, after that, I think you'll probably see a lot of political uh, implications and uh, a lot of the politics will start up in a big way. And you're not going to probably see all that much legislating unless some, you know, emergency occurs. Um, but I think you'll get a tremendous experience in June and July. And that's really the bulk of, of the time period for this internship or, or fellowship. 
What will the fellow be doing? Can you can you walk us through a little bit what the experience will be like for for the lucky individual who was chosen to to be the first inaugural fellow? Sure. Well, we're really looking for someone who's motivated to understand and you know roll up their sleeves and really begin um, to understand the world of advocacy uh, from our perspective, from the OMP perspective and to bring their own personal perspective to the to this equation um, so we're we're you know op- absolute prerequisite is that you use a, a custom orthosis or prosthesis that's number one uh, and then we're looking for people uh, who really have a, an interest in um, a public policy who have an interest in orthotics and prosthetics who want to advance uh, and advocate on behalf of those issues who have an interest in politics uh, to the point of you know, understanding how the system works. Now, you'll get a lot of that education here through the fellowship, but the more that you uh, have and bring to the equation, the more valuable that candidate is going to be for this fellowship. And what you'll be doing on a daily basis, we're, we're going to have a full calendar put in place. It's a 10-week uh, internship, paid internship, as you know. So it'll be a 10-week week calendar. We've gotten commitments from a number of other uh orthotic prosthetic organizations, including the, you know, the accreditors, the business organization, the professional society uh, called the Academy, and then um, the amputee coalition, all will be participating to some extent. And you'll be really located in a law firm environment, uh, with which has a legislative practice, that's my law firm, and uh, you'll be shadowing me and, and my legislative team. You'll be doing a lot of uh, work on orthotics and prosthetics, but also, again, as I said earlier, the broader set of healthcare, rehab, and disability issues. So it's it's not so focused on orthotics and prosthetics you, that you won't get the broader context of what's going on around you in this space. Um, so that's pretty much the structure of it. Uh, I'll be pretty hands-on, but there'll be plenty of opportunities to uh, get out of the, the office to do um, uh, the heavy lifting of going to hearings and writing up memos and analyzing legislation and regulations and attending coalition meetings, um, both here at the firm and, and elsewhere, attending think tank meetings, uh, you know, other presentations by good speakers in Washington. Yeah, people come to Washington and, and oftentimes they'll get the Washington bug. And what we're hopeful is that the, this fellow will get inspired and um, hopefully wind up uh, doing some complementary work in this area. I mean, my goal, my dream is to have, you know, a, a stable of, of amputees and, and, and people who use custom orthoses, uh, you know, in Washington, located in positions of power and, and um, you know, you know, policymaking um, functions, uh, you know, not only within the executive branch, but throughout the Congress and, and the different agencies that really understands orthotics, prosthetics, and, and healthcare disability issues from a personal perspective and brings that to their job going forward, brings that to their endeavors, whether it's their full-time job or, or, or an advocacy, um, you know, volunteer uh, position that they, that they would be engaged in. So we're looking to, for, to develop a farm team over the longer term. And uh, this is the initial step into that um, endeavor. Definitely a big first step. Yeah. So, Peter, as we were as we were talking before we started recording today, the thought occurred to me, and I, I said it out loud to you. You know, in many ways, your career sort of represents what um, what you'd love to have out of the fellowship program. You've been 
on on the ground from really your earliest professional career. You've been on the ground floor fighting uh, for the rights of people with disabilities and in D.C. doing that. So let's let's go all the way back and talk about how you got into this world in the first place. So um, where did you grow up? Um, you know, what was your home life like and how did you specifically enter the limb loss, limb difference world? Uh, sure. Well, let me see. Um, I grew up on Long Island, New York, a little town called Northport, which is a beautiful, just a beautiful town with a harbor and, uh, you know, Main Street. And it's just an idyllic place to grow up. Still is. Um, parents still live there. And, uh, you know, ultimately, when I was 10 years old, uh, was involved in a car accident uh, and lost uh, my legs below the knees. So I've got about six inches below the knee on the right leg and about four and a half inches below the knee on the left leg. And there, it wasn't a pretty kind of a thing. It wasn't a nice, you know, surgery. It was a pretty traumatic kind of experience. So I don't, I don't run, but I do a whole lot of other stuff. And, and I was able to do that obviously through the use of, um, prostheses. And, uh, I, I had, my dad at the time had very good insurance. He was a public school teacher in New York. Uh, and so I pretty much got to go to whatever prosthetist I wanted to. I wound up traveling a fair amount and seeking out the best prosthetist I could. And uh, so I, through the years, I've had, you know, significant access to prosthetics, um, the newest technologies as they would come out. I mean, I've been on artificial limbs now for 43 years, so 44 years, I should say. So um, I've seen, you know, my original legs were made of balsa wood and, uh, you know, um, you know, hard laminate plastic with a thigh corset that was, you know, went up over my knee and uh, strapped around my uh, my thigh, you know, kind of old rawhide leather. And, you know, it, it looked like something out of, uh, you know, the turn of the century, uh, the last century. Uh, so it was very, you know, exciting to see new developments that occurred throughout the years. And uh, as I became more mobile and more functional, um, you know, I just try to take advantage of that every time I, you know, there, there was new technology that could help me, I'd try to use it. Um, so that, that, that's kind of a, the early story. I, I, I guess what I'd say is um, I quickly became involved in adaptive sports, which was a huge, huge opening for me as a young boy, you know, I mean, my, my, the accident was a pretty bad accident. My, my brother, uh, Eric was killed um, in the same accident and I was thrown from the car. So you know, that's, that's not a, that, that's a pretty significant experience. I went to Craig Rehabilitation Hospital uh, for two and a half months. That's in Denver, Colorado, as a result of some family connections. I had some, um, some healthcare people who worked out there and invited my family out. And um, it was, a, it was out, outstanding to, to get that kind of a, a comprehensive rehabilitative care. So, you know, early in life and really genuinely get back on track. So one of one of the really um, interesting aspects of this is that you have a distinct memory of life with two limbs. Um, you then are in this accident. Uh, you you spend two months out in Denver and and uh, you go back to school eventually. So talk to I think it would be interesting to know sort of how did your parents and and other siblings help support you as you made that transition back to school and what was that experience like? I think there are a lot of parents out there. Uh, we, we we know we have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast uh, who you know have young kids who. Uh, 
move into the world of limb loss, uh, not not you know by design, obviously at the at around the same age as you, and and they worry about what will their kids' life be like, how will they be treated in school, and what was that like? So, can you talk a little bit about both the role your parents played and siblings played as you made that transition, as well as, um, as well as what it was like for you to go back to school and how your classmates treated you? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, first off, it, it, whenever you're involved, and my guess is that a disproportionate number of your listeners knows uh, this personally, but when you're involved in a <clears throat> significant traumatic experience, um, you know, with a, with a, when a, seven people in, were in the car when this, when this car accident occurred, uh, my parents, my sister, my grandparents, and my brother and myself. So it, that's a family impact. And whenever you have something like that occur, it either drives the family together or it drives them apart. And in our case, it drove them, drove us together. So my, my parents were just fantastic in the way that they had handled this and, and treated it. Uh, again, as going to Craig was a huge advantage because uh, that was a hospital that really served a, um, an older population, a brain injury and a spinal cord population, spinal cord injury population. So I was the youngest kid there and, and the only amputee there. And uh, I was treated pretty specially and, and had a great time doing it. I must tell you, you look back now and the memories are, um, are all positive. I mean, there were plenty of painful memories, but they've faded over the years. Um, so getting back to school was a big goal of mine. Obviously, I wanted to to recover and you know get back on track. And I, I did wound wound up. Uh, I was a little late, about three weeks late, after the school school year began. But I did go back. I walked into my fifth grade class, which was my goal to do that. And um, uh, I did use the chair. I, I used the wheelchair a fair amount. And uh, they, uh, you know, back back in the day, they, they didn't even have a wheel a, a, a an elevator in the school. So, you know, there was kind of, um, you know, people would sit up with me up in the classroom and kind of we'd have our own deal going. It's a very different situation today. Um, the first thing I did when I came back that one first day is I sat in front of the class. I asked for a little time and I answered questions because there's so many questions that, that the kids had about what had happened to me and what was going to happen going forward. So I even took my leg off and I showed them, you know, just, you know, what what happened and here it is. And you got any questions? And I must have been I must have talked for an hour uh, just answering questions. Um, and I think that diffused a lot of the kind of the people talking behind my back. And so they knew that they could just come up and ask me whatever I whatever question they might have. And and that really, I think, helped um, uh, take some of the stigma away. And uh, people recognized that I was the same old kid. I just uh, got around differently. And um, I must give great credit to not just my friends and my family, but my, my whole community. I didn't experience a lot of discrimination. I didn't, ex I didn't get taunted. I, didn't, I mean, I remember one kid taunted me one time and a couple of guys behind me that I didn't even know that well came up and like, pushed him into the ground and like, like I didn't even need to fight, you know I mean? That just, uh, people were watching out for me. They had my back. So it was, uh, it was maybe a different experience than a lot of uh, other kids have. I don't know. Um, I, I, that's just my experience, but, uh, it gave me great, uh, um, a great sense that, that I could move on. I could do what I wanted to do. You mentioned the role that disabled sports played. Um, 
what, uh, how did you specifically get into that? Well, let's see. At first, I wasn't into it. At first, I was um, sitting on the sideline and uh, not, you know, I, I used to be a big soccer player. That was my sport prior to my accident. So I wanted to, to do something in uh, team sports. But at that point, you know, you, you take for granted today. I mean, you got people running marathons and climbing rock walls with artificial limbs and it's it's old hat. It's like everyone's doing triathlons. Uh, but that not that wasn't the case in 74. The technology just wasn't there prosthetically. Um, and so, you know, I didn't I, I didn't have the wind in my hair uh, at any particular time. I did learn to ride a bike. That was really helpful because it got me around. I didn't need to rely on parents to drive me from place to place. I could just go out with my friends and take my bike. And that that's tremendously freeing. And it allowed me as you know, 11, 12, 13 year old to have a lot of independence and to, to get around and to not be confined to the house. And that was huge. So that was the kind of the first foray into, into that. It wasn't a sport, but it certainly was a way to get me around and, and independently. Um, but then I got into uh, ski, uh, skiing and uh, snow skiing and uh, through a, a place called Jack Frost. It's a mountain here in the, in the Poconos. And they had a program back then uh and um that fed into a a championship uh ski tournament in uh winter park colorado uh i believe it still it, it definitely still happens it's the disabled sports uh um kind of championships for um, a lot of amputees go there and ski and th th i learned how to ski on outriggers which are pretty much canadian crutches with ski tips at the end of them and so i'd have two skis and two outriggers and um God, I just loved it. I, I, it was just such an, an exciting thing to be able to get on legs um, and then on skis and then to move and have the wind in your hair again. It, it was just a whole, it, it just completely opened up my world. Um, and as a result of that, I think it gave me tremendous confidence to, to just do what I wanted to do. Um, so I won a bunch of medals and stuff. Of course, I was a juvenile. I was below 18. Uh, and I was the one of the only bilaterals there. So all I really had to do was enter the race and I won a gold medal. But, um, you know, other than that, uh, it was a lot of fun. I had a great time doing it. I skied for several years uh, all throughout high school. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I maybe sounds a little bit odd now, but I, I wore my medals because they look like Olympic medals. And, you know, People were asking, how'd you do? How'd you do? I took off from school for two weeks, you know, to go to the national ski championships for people with limb loss. And I, I came home with like four or five medals every time. And, you know, people wanted to know, they wanted to see it. So um, I would wear them around school and uh, just the first day. I mean, believe me, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't do this for weeks on end, uh, but I would uh, get that kind of recognition, I guess. And um, I really fell in love with um, uh, uh, student government and, and ran in my senior year for student body president, student class president, I guess, and, and won. And um, through that experience and through the skiing experience, I actually met one of my lifetime mentors, George DePontis from um, from Miami, Florida. And he was, he published the nationals magazine, uh, during that, um, during that time in the seventies and early eighties, when, uh, the winter park, uh, uh, in Colorado hosted the ski championships. And I got to know him real well. And 
he just was very, very encouraging. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of mentoring. Um, it's an important uh, uh, component of bringing along the younger uh, generation and, and making sure that they, uh, you know, excel um, and have the opportunity to excel. And so I, that's that's something that really got me excited about student student government. And, and after experiencing that, and I did the same thing in college, I, I got into Boston College, which um, uh, was a great place to go to school and wound up becoming the chairman of the Senate and the chairman of the uh, president of the student body in my senior years. So um, you mentioned student government in high school, and I think this is the perfect opportunity for you to share one of my favorite stories about you, which is your your brush with a very famous um, musician uh, as a result of your position at Northport High School. Uh-oh. Would you care I'm to share to that share with the community? It, but now I'm going to be on record. Uh, so, so there was a uh, where I grew up, I, I uh, babysat the stepson of uh, Billy Joel. And so I got to know Billy Joel. Uh, not, I didn't know him well. I, I knew him through his music. I knew him, obviously, as a, a pop icon back in the you know 70s and 80s. But um, I had an idea to, you know, I was class president, and the prom was coming up. And prom is a big deal in senior year in high school. And we decided to uh, call the prom. The theme was I've Loved These Days by Billy Joel. And I kind of knew where he lived. Um, as a result of this uh, babysitting experience that I had with his stepson. So I figured, what the heck, why, why not just try it? So I f- drove to his house and um, I was very appalled that there was a big gate and it was closed and um, I couldn't get in and there didn't seem to be anyone answering the, the gate. So I figured I'd walk around, <laughs> see if I could get other access to the compound and I wound up crawling under a fence with a buddy of mine and we got into his, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I basically trespassed and I walked onto his front yard and knocked on his front door and looked at his gold records hanging in the inside foyer and decided I better get out of here. This is not a good idea. So I, I left, <laughs> I left pretty quickly, but I did come back. Uh, the gate was open. He was there. I met him. I shook his hand. Uh, It just so happened that he happened to be uh, hobbled. He had gotten into a little motorcycle accident and had broken his uh, wrist or something like that. So he was in a cast and he couldn't do it. But uh, he was delightful, very nice guy. And um, uh, at least I tried, you know. (laughs) What was the pitch? I just said, hey, you know, I'm Peter Thomas. And I forgot to mention the the stepson connection. I was hoping that might, might get him, but I... I, I just was nervous and I, I you know, didn't uh, didn't mention that. But I just asked him, you know, if he could play that song. That's our theme. And could he just drop by and play our play at our prom? A pretty audacious request. I didn't expect you to say yes. But what the heck? <laughs> I still love that story. I just love the image of the, of the amputee <laughs> crawling under a fence and right. <laughs> hovering around the perimeter of the house. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. So. Um, how did you decide to go to Boston College? Well, that's uh, more serendipity than anything. I, I uh, was doing a college tour with my parents, and we were in Boston. We went to a couple of different schools um, on the way up and, and in Boston. And we were going to Harvard to look at Harvard. And don't get me wrong, I, I was not getting into Harvard. I did not have the grades to get into Harvard. But I also knew 
um, that there is absolutely no way you're getting into Harvard unless you apply to Harvard, right? <laughs> I mean, you have to actually apply if you're going to get rejected. So it helps. I was just, yeah, I was just figured, let's go check it out, see what Cambridge, you know, square looks like. And, and on the way there, driving down Commonwealth Avenue in, in Boston, I see this little sign on the side of the road and it's, it's really pretty nondescript. It's not a big grandiose sign you know, Boston College. And I'm like, wow, what's that place? You look down the the main opening of that campus and you see the heights and this gorgeous building. And Boston College is just a just a beautiful place. And um, we turned around, walk, walked in, you know, met a few people, asked for an interview. Um, they gave it to me. I sat down and chatted about what I wanted to do. <clears throat> Long story short, it's the only school I applied to. And um, I got accepted early early decision. So it was the definitely the place for me, but it was completely, um, uh, it was nearly, nearly completely uh, serendipity. So Peter, when you, you talked about going to Boston College, sort of stumbling upon it, and then you said, you know, I told them what it was that I wanted to do. And you ended up applying their early decision and getting in. But did you have a clear idea as a senior in high school, as you were touring that campus, uh, what it was that you wanted to do and what, what did you talk to them about? Well, uh, yeah, I, you know, my high school uh, in Northport uh, had a, a good law program, which was very strange. It had like a moot court program and they tried to get high school students uh, engaged in law. And I kind of knew that I wasn't going to be in a career that um, that had a whole lot of, you know, activity in order to, to, to get the job done. I knew that I would, I would be looking for a, a more of a, frankly, a desk job. And I had always been interested in, um, you know, advocating. I advocated for myself in some instances with respect to healthcare or other things. And, uh, you know, I, I liked public speaking. Uh, a lot of people get really nervous and can't really do it. Don't like doing it. Um, Everyone needs to learn how to do public speaking. I mean, it's just uh, is something that needs to happen. And um, I, you know, kind of knew that that's kind of what I wanted to do. But the first and foremost kind of thing that I knew is that I wanted to get a good education. So I, I did go to BC. I, I uh, uh, my essay that I wrote uh, for BC had to do with, uh, I think it was called adversity adjustment action achievement. So it was kind of, you know. You, you, you kind of everyone gets confronted with challenges of one sort or another. Um, some people come from broken homes. Some people experience discrimination of all kinds. Some people, have, you know, exceedingly low income and are just fighting, you know, to to get ahead. Uh, so so everyone's got uh, challenges. But the question was, you know, kind of how do you apply yourself to it and then overcome them? And I think they they like that. They you know, pointed out that the essay was well done and in subsequent conversations that I had with them. Um, but as my friends around me began interviewing in junior year of college for kind of, you know, big, it used to be big eight firms, big six firms, uh, you know, all kinds of interviews. I, I couldn't even imagine going on interviews and, and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. So I, I quickly said, I think I'll apply to law school. So that's, that's, that's pretty, what, pretty much what I did. I went straight from uh, Boston College to Georgetown. Um, so you and I both did exactly the same thing. To avoid getting a job, we went back to school. Right. That's, that's pretty sophisticated much sophisticated approach. <laughs> 
right. <laughs> it sounds it sounds uh, uh, a little uninspired now, but uh, you know, back when I was twenty, uh, I wasn't sure really what I wanted to do, but I did kind of have an inkling that this is where I wanted to be. I had a, a real sense that Washington would be a good town for me to be in. Um, and then I subsequently learned uh, by after living in New York City for one year that in fact that that was the case. I could- I'd I'd like to know um, I'd like to know just from an accessibility standpoint how things were going to college using two prosthetic devices versus um, how you think kids in a similar situation are doing now. No, I, I mean I I think that back then. Uh, everyone that I ran into just did what they could to accommodate. Uh, it was not the, the age where uh, every curb had a curb cut and every building had an elevator. And, you know, it just wasn't that case. So you oftentimes, I, I would be, um, I said in my elementary school, they didn't have a, uh, an elevator. I would be carried up stairs by two janitors in my wheelchair, which is an exceedingly dangerous thing to do. Uh, people can clearly get dumped from a wheelchair in that position very easily. So, uh, but they did it and they did it every day in order to get me to the classroom. And they didn't want me in a special classroom, a different classroom outside of the fifth or sixth grade. Uh, and all the fifth and sixth grade classes were on the second floor. So, and, and I didn't want, I, I wanted to be with my classmates. So it just kind of made it happen at, at BC. There's three different levels to the campus and um, you know, getting around a college campus in a wheelchair is difficult um on artificial legs most people wouldn't really think that it would be difficult but it is there's tremendous amount of stairs uh a lot of distance you know and so what i did is i told them about this and they had a counselor that worked with me and um they gave me all kinds of access i had a a little car that i drove around and they allowed me onto the campus uh you know gave me my own special key when they locked the place up and you know I, i had a lot of uh you know, accessibility kind of designed for me, um, despite the fact that the campus wasn't particularly accessible. It's much more, it's much better now um, as they've, you know, improved on accessible features over the decades. But yeah, it was not easy to get around, but uh, because I had that special access, it, uh, you know, I could park, you know, outside of my classrooms and kind of not have to walk all over the place and and it made it uh, completely doable. Yeah, and it's funny, we uh, we actually hosted a, uh, <laughs> I think back at this now, uh, uh, sense, I, th- I think we called it Sensitivity 86, <laughs> and it was a, it was a, a handicap awareness a, a day uh, where we, we <laughs> um, got a local durable medical equipment company to donate a bunch of wheelchairs for the day, uh, manual wheelchairs, and crutches and canes, white canes. And we got some blindfolds and, and the whole purpose was to, uh, for a day, spend the day um, getting around campus in a chair on crutches, you know, uh, with a white cane and a right. blindfold and just kind of experience what it's like uh, to do that. And got a lot of eye, you know, a lot of people who had their eyes open to how difficult that can be. Um, where they go to a classroom uh, and, you know, the building had six steps out front and they couldn't get their wheelchair up to six steps. And what do they do? And, you know, I, you know, they, I got a lot of feedback from that. Teddy Kennedy Jr. happened to be, uh, uh, we invited him to come and speak and he did. He spoke at the event and it went really well. It was a good, 
um, a good, I guess, kind of uh, illustration of how important accessibility is. But yeah, that's before the ADA passed. That's in 1986. That's uh, that's quite a while ago. It's a very different story today. So as you transitioned into law school in D.C., at what point did you know that advocacy, disability, the, those those worlds were the place that you wanted well, to play professionally? Well, I mean, I, I was uh, at Georgetown, and, and Georgetown Law is not on the campus of Georgetown. So it's not uh, in Georgetown itself. It's up on Capitol Hill. It's right next to the Capitol building and the Senate side. So you're surrounded by... Uh, you know, I drive every day to work and you drive past the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument and then right past the Capitol building and you park two, you know, two blocks away from the Capitol. You can't help but get kind of caught up in that. Um, so, you know, and there's plenty of opportunities uh, at law school to, to try to uh, do fellowships or try to do uh uh, you know, other kinds of extracurricular activities that would put you in a position to get exposed to Washington and its functions and how it works. And I, I was approached by the uh, same gentleman that I told I talked about a moment ago, George Deponis, and he had um, ideas of putting together an association called the State of the Art Prosthetic Association to advocate for more research dollars in prosthetics and orthotics. And um, principally back then, I must say, in prosthetics. And we ultimately, I worked with him. I was the consumer vice president. Um, and uh, George Brees, who currently is the executive director for NAOP, the National Association for the Advancement of Orthotics and Prosthetics, I, I met George as a result of um, some activities uh, involving prosthetics and wound up uh, working with him on, on state-of-the-art prosthetic association in 1987 was the first year we put that together. And so through law school, I was I was lobbying. I was doing um, advocacy work through this, my volunteering with um, uh, called the SOTAPA, um, uh, State of the Art Prosthetic Association. Um, and that eventually turned into my first client in 1994 when I got out of law school and started doing this full-time, uh, full-time basis. But it was, uh, it was a bill, the, the thing that we were principally engaged in is a bill was ultimately called the Claude Pepper Act for amputees, and it would create uh, a research program at the National Institutes of Health. And uh, we felt that there needed to be more research dollars in prosthetics and orthotics, and that the vast majority of the prosthetics that was being um, uh, funded, or the prosthetic research that was being funded, was through the industry efforts itself. And, you know, you've, you've got a... Um, an orphan drug kind of problem with prosthetics and orthotics. Not enough uh, individuals need them so that you've got, uh, you know, a sufficient, uh, you know, base upon which you can invest lots of dollars and expect a return on that investment. Not like a like a you know prescription drug that applies to millions and millions of people. You know, we we don't have that many people in the limb loss community, limb difference community. So. Uh, research, federal research dollars were critical, and ultimately that wound up passing, and um, I had a hand in that. Uh, there's a lot of people involved in it, but I got unbelievably turned on to the notion that you could change the federal law and design a program to help people like yourself, um, and that was really inspiring to me, and that's really kind of what, what got me hooked. So 
you have you always been um, you know you graduated law school you you go into you go into this world working with George Brees and George Deponis you know that's sort of the 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 pull through to amputee specific advocacy um, did you you know you're you're at the Powers firm now is that the firm you started at well it's funny I, when I graduated from uh, from law school I was interviewing and I interviewed in a couple of firms in New York City and. Um, one of my classmates' mothers <laughs> was a partner in that firm, and she wanted to meet me, and I met with her and uh, did the interview, uh, got back to my apartment uh, from New York, um, I got back to my apartment in Washington, I already had three voicemail messages from her on my message machine. Right. <laughs> back then you had message machines. <laughs> uh, and uh, they were just very aggressive about recruiting me. And I, I said, who am I not to go to New York City and get a job? So uh, I, I wound up working in New York for one year. And it was insurance defense work. And, you know, God love lawyers that do insurance defense work. That's fine. But that's not why I went to law school. That's not that didn't. Um, satisfy my my real urge to to you know frankly it sounds corny but help people uh i was constantly on the on the other end of that defending um and you know defending against some cases where individuals really were significantly harmed or their families were significantly harmed and they were just looking for you know uh, compensation to level the playing field and um I was in the position of defending uh, all the folks that ultimately would have to pay. And I just didn't like that position. So I ultimately left and I came back down to Washington. And I, you know, in 1991, there was a bit of a recession. Uh, law jobs were tough to find. And um, I continued working on that legislation until it finally passed uh, and was signed into law um, on Reese Rehab uh, Research. But then I also started writing a book on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, I needed to fill my day. And I figured, you know, this would be a good way to introduce myself to a bunch of the disability leaders in town. I wound up um, having, you know, over 50 interviews with um, different uh, individuals around town and, you know, telling them I'm writing a, a book. I actually co-authored it with another author. Um, but that gave me some great, uh, a great vantage point or kind of a perch to go in and meet with people that were much more senior than myself that I normally would never have been able to meet um, and interview them and, and learn a lot about the ADA and what the Americans with Disabilities Act requires and covers and how you comply with it and, and all the minutia, the regulations. And um, it was a great education. So I wound up not being employed, but wound up doing a lot that would prepare me for what I ultimately wound up doing, which was, um, you know, healthcare and disability advocacy work. Uh, and that's when I met um, and, and got a job at um, with Dick Verville, who is a you know, mentor of mine and still continues to be my partner to this day. Uh, and um, got involved in that firm in 1992, and I've been here ever since. So I've either got uh, an incredible loyalty to, um, to my employer uh, or... Uh, I'm just really not creative when it comes to uh, carving my my path going forward. <laughs> no, I've become a partner at the firm and I help run the firm. And it's uh, if I don't like what I'm doing and I, I need to change it, I don't need to, to move to another place. I just need to change uh, what we're doing here. But we're, we're doing fine. We're enjoying um, what we do and the firm's in good shape. And 
Um, I just want to see if we can kind of rub off on some on some younger people and get them engaged in the kind of kind of work that um, that we do on a routine basis. So you started then at your firm in 1992, correct? That's right. Okay. So what what have been the biggest changes in terms of advocacy issues from 1992 to 2018? What what are your biggest what do you think are the biggest accomplishments and conversely what do you think is still going to be the biggest battle? Uh, okay, well, there's a lot there. So let me start with um, how it's changed over the years and um, and if you don't mind jog my memory when you're talking about the biggest achievements or the future battles. Um, but let me start by saying that uh, I think one of the key things has changed is po- the politics. It used to be. And this goes way back into the 70s and 80s. And my partner, Dick Burville, tells me this all the time. It used to be that people on both sides of the political aisle would see a problem. Uh, let's say it's in the health and human services area. And they'd brainstorm about what could be done about that problem and what kind of a program could help. Um, you know, what is the issue itself and how could you solve it or help solve it? And reasonable minds would differ, but you'd come together with a strategy, maybe a grant program administered by the states. You know, you you affix a number to it. You bring it forward in Congress. You'd have some hearings. You'd get, you know, bipartisan support. Not everyone would support it, but most people would. And you'd move things through the process and get things done. And I'm telling you, it's just like pulling teeth today. It's changed so much in terms of the, the politics and the partisanship around everything um, that happens on Capitol Hill, it's much more difficult to get things done uh, than it used to be. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, the other big, big change, I think, is the growth and the proliferation of interest groups. It used to be that you, know, you could go start a practice and, and start developing clients and and uh, figure out ways to do things for other people and wind up getting paid for it with with relative not ease but with it would be doable uh today there are so many lobbyists there are so many lawyers uh and they're all working for someone and i must tell you that there's an association for every single thing you can imagine um and that makes breaking through that makes messaging on key issues that impact people with disabilities, people with limb loss, limb difference. It makes it more difficult to, to rise above the din of, um, of advocacy that everyone else is on Capitol Hill trying to promote. And so it just kind of means that we've got to up our own game. We can't just rely on kind of the empathy factor. Uh, we need good data. Uh, to bring them, to show them cost effectiveness of the uh, O&P interventions that are provided across this country. We need, you know, strong advocacy on coverage policies to make sure that people get access to this kind of care uh, and are not overly financially burdened by it. And that's, those messages are that much more difficult to, uh, to have heard you can, you can put plenty of things out. You can issue press releases and you can go to Capitol Hill. But unless you've got um, a real concerted effort and it's got to be maintained, it's not just a one-off thing. 
it's a it's a constant effort to try to make sure that we are putting our best foot forward, so to speak, and um, rising above the rest of the noise. And that's something that um, certainly has changed over the last 20 years. So to close the loop, Peter, you said to remind you about what you see as the key accomplishments you've uh, you've achieved during that time and the key challenges that still remain. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's the key uh, accomplishments that I have achieved. I, I must tell you, in Washington, it's very. It, it, when I say that there's been a proliferation of interest groups, let me tell you, nothing gets done because one group wants to do something. There is always another group that opposes it for whatever reason, um, or has a different take on it. Uh, and you know, unless you're you know, a, a behemoth like uh, AARP, you know, the American Association of Retired Persons, they kind of set their own agenda. They've got that kind of a membership and a clout that allows them to do that. Um, but most groups amplify their message through coalitions. And it's a good thing. It's, you know, the worst thing that you can do as an advocate is walk in to a decision maker's office, a policymaker's office and say, here's what we want you to do. And then the next day, someone else from a complementary uh, area comes in and says, we need to, we can't, we don't want to do X. We need to do Y. If, if you're not on the same page and you've got groups that should be aligned with you, uh, saying disparate things on the, on the Capitol Hill or in any decision maker's office, you're not going to get very far. So working together um, is critical. And that's how the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990. That's how the uh, Health Insurance Portability uh, Act was passed in 1997, which brought um, essentially to the small group insurance market uh, non-discrimination protections. Uh, you know, that's how the ACA was passed, America, the Affordable Care Act in 2010. I mean, just large numbers of, of organizations trying to do the best they can to, to stay focused and uh, reach consensus on some very critical issues. And a lot's been done um, to, to advance those programs, private insurance programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Veterans Administration. Uh, you know, Public Health Service Act, there's all kinds of very needy issues that apply and that impact people with disabilities and chronic conditions on a daily basis. So there's huge milestones that have been achieved. And sometimes in Washington, it's not just what you achieve, it's what you uh, thwart. It's what you are able to, to defend and back down when harmful proposals come your way. So last year, when Congress was trying to cut $800 billion out of the Medicaid program over the next 10 years and fundamentally restructure and change that program, you know, the disability groups are largely credited with coming together and defending Medicaid to the point where they failed in, in, in restructuring that program. They failed in, in replacing, uh, you know, repealing and replacing the ACA. And that was a milestone um, in defending those those programs for people with disabilities and chronic conditions, in particular. That's a really, uh, I think, that's a thoughtful way to to frame it. Not just in terms of offensively what you can do, but so much of what you're doing in DC is is defensive sometimes. Uh, so I think that's a useful yeah. perspective. All right, last question from me and Peggy. Um, 
you've lived with limb loss for the vast majority of your life. You've, you've seen changes in technology. You've seen changes in policy. Um, you are at the forefront of the NAAP effort to, uh, to uh, start this and, and run this fellowship program. You're going to be intimately involved with it. What advice do you have for the limb loss, limb difference community generally? If you could say a few things that you've learned over the years or that you're particularly passionate about that you think people should know, what is it? Well, I mean, it, it may sound obvious, but it, it, it's, it comes from the heart. I mean, get involved. Um, get, uh, get to Washington. Get to your state house. Get to your local, um, you know, uh, policy-making uh, function, whatever that may be, local government, um, town council, uh, you know, state, uh, get involved with your state issues and certainly get involved with the federal issues because uh, it's daunting. You know, you come to Capitol Hill and you walk around and you meet with seven or eight different people and, and you have no idea what you're actually, uh, how much of an impact you're actually having. But I can tell you that, uh, you're having a big one. And there's no, perhaps no more effective um, way to advocate than to have people who are directly impacted by, uh, the, by the care and the decisions that you're talking about um, be involved in the advocacy itself. I, I, you know, I work with a bunch of different groups, and one of the groups is um, some of the spinal cord injury uh, organizations. And I'm always surprised just as I am with the amputee or organizations, um, O&P organizations, that more people are not on Capitol Hill and more people are not hired by their by these association staffs to advocate on their behalf. It just makes very little sense to for a, an able-bodied kind of ambulatory person to walk in to a, a, a congressional office and try to get them to do something that's favorable for people who use wheelchairs. Why aren't people in wheelchairs advocating for policies about wheelchairs? Uh, and that same thing applies to prosthetics. I, I've been doing this now for 20, is it 25, 26 years um, professionally uh, doing this, meaning advocating, lobbying, doing uh, legislative work, uh, you know, impacting o &P and rehab and disability. And I got to tell you that in that, in that amount of time, there's been, other than myself, there's been one person who used a prosthesis in all of the associations that advocate on behalf of amputees. I take that back. If you include the Amputee Coalition of America, uh, uh, there was, there's two. So out of 27 years, there are two people who could demonstrate what it was like to, to walk with a artificial limb or custom orthoses who were talking about these issues. The vast majority of people we send to or that go to Capitol Hill and talk about ONP policy are not amputees. They're not people using the ONP devices and services that we're talking about. So that's a, a, a fundamental underpinning of this fellowship. And it's what we hope to accomplish is to really prime the pump for a new generation of advocates to come from our own ranks, to come from people who use these technologies to fully function. And there's no better advocate than someone who's taken advantage of that and now wants to spread that to other folks. I, I had incredible insurance coverage throughout my, my uh, life. 
but 13 different sets of artificial limbs over 40, uh, 44 years. So I want everyone to have that access. Everyone should have that the ability to, to access what they need in order to function as, at their maximum extent. So uh, in order to do that, we just need more people that understand it from a personal perspective and can bring that to their policy, uh, uh, to the policy process. And whether that's advocating from the outside uh, to the policymakers or whether that's those policymaking operations across government and bring to um, you know, that personal experience and that, that expertise, that's the goal. That's what we really need to advance. I think that's a great way to end it. Um, and again, everybody, if you're interested in the fellowship or learning more, uh, visit www.naaop.org. Nothing about us without I love us. that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time and for for dedicating your career, really, to, to helping the limb loss, limb difference community. Um, I know that my experience as an amputee is better because of your efforts. Um, and, you know, from everybody, we, we really appreciate you fighting the fight. And the Amped Army is very active and stand ready and willing to help you whenever. Outstanding. I've really enjoyed uh, uh, this chat. Thanks so much for asking me to do it. Thank you, Peter. All right. All right. We'll talk to you soon, Peggy. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Bye. -bye.